You know, in um, doing this series, sermon series we finished last week uh, about Jesus' road to Jerusalem, road to the cross, and the things he did on the journey to Jerusalem to, as he was going to be crucified, I had the thought coming across, particularly last week, getting ready for today, uh, what would your plans be if you knew you only had a few days to live? Jesus gets close to Jerusalem on Saturday, knowing that he's going to die the following Friday. If you only had seven days to live, and you knew it, what would you do? What would be your agenda items for those seven days? Would that change from your current schedule? My wife reminded me of a quote uh, yesterday of Dallas Willard. He was a, a preacher and a writer, and uh, it was his desire to be so spiritually attuned and walking with the Lord that when he died, he wouldn't realize it for a while because he was so close to the Lord. But if you only had a few days to live, I think of Elijah in the Old Testament. He knew that he was going to die, that the Lord was going to take him, and the Lord did in a whirlwind, um, escorted by a, a chariot of fire. He knew he only had a little bit of time to live, and what did he do? He invested in Elisha, blessed Elisha. Sometime past, we had a church member here who only had, uh, I, I believe it was just about a week to live. And I went out to see him, and all he wanted to do was read scripture and pray. He wanted more of Jesus as he neared the end. There was another man uh, who had about two or three days left to live, and the doctors had told him it was near the end. And he spent that time calling family members to tell them how much he loved them, and he looked forward to seeing them again in heaven. If you only had seven days to live, what would you do? I mean, really think about it, contemplate it, because what Jesus did, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He knew he only had this many days to live, and he goes, and the first thing he does, we saw last week, he gets to Bethany about a mile and a half-ish outside of Jerusalem. He has dinner with a group of people, and he's investing in those people. And then the next morning, Sunday morning before he dies on that Friday, is what we're going to look at today. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack there in front of you, uh, uh, we are going to be on page 899. 899. You know what, back up just a little bit. We'll be on 898. This is bonus. This isn't in my notes. So it's probably not on the screen, Alyssa. Uh, so it's not her fault. It's not on the screen. This is mine. I'm, I'm, I'm ad-libbing at the moment. Uh, but after Jesus had his meal in Bethany and Mary and Martha were there, Lazarus was there having just been raised from the dead not too long before. And I want to reference this uh, just as a bonus for you. Uh, verse 10 of John chapter 12. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Lazarus became a target 
Because he was so influential in pointing other people to Jesus. How influential are you in pointing people to Jesus? So much so that you become a target for the enemy? I mean, Lazarus, all he did was die. And Jesus raised him from the dead. And he was a walking, living, breathing testimony to the power of Jesus. You know anybody like that? A living, breathing, walking testimony to the power of Jesus? And so because Lazarus was acknowledging the power of Jesus in his life and bringing him back from the dead, he became a target because he was making people believe in Jesus. And so now get down to verse 12. Here we go. Sunday, Palm Sunday. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so this feast that's here in Jerusalem, this is Passover This is a big deal for Jews. And during this day and time, we're guesstimating, but we believe that Jerusalem on a typical non-feast day had about 100,000 citizens-ish in Jerusalem and, and the surrounding area. But during Passover, most likely that swelled up to a million people. Now, that's a massive amount of people in today's time. Imagine that in first century that your city swells to 10 times its size, and it's a million people. So when it says a large crowd that had come to the feast, that's a large crowd that had come to the feast. They heard that Jesus was coming. Word had trickled down that Jesus was right outside the city in Bethany, and he was coming into the city. And the city is now all a tizzy. People are going crazy. Jesus is here, raising people from the dead. Jesus is here, making the blind people see Jesus is here. And so as all of this talk is swirling, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Some very significant things in this verse. Palm branches were, were often waved in celebration and victory, uh, usually in welcoming a king and coming into town. It literally means save now, bring salvation now. Um, It's an expression of joyous praise to God, save us now. But they're crying out Hosanna, not just to God, they're crying out Hosanna to Jesus, declaring Jesus to be God, the Messiah. As they say there in verse 13, the king of Israel. They're saying he is the one who's come to save us all in this declaration as they're waving their palm branches of victory, their palm branches of celebration as Jesus is coming into town. A massive throng of people. Remember, a million people here. And you have, you have this truckload. I mean, obviously not the whole million are out there at the parade grounds, but even if you just had 100,000, 200,000 people out there, the, the sound of these people crying out is, is overwhelming here. Uh, Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, riding on a donkey was, it was a sign of peace. 
uh, in this day and time. And so they're waving palm branches, save us now. Jesus is coming in on a donkey, a sign of peace. Uh, but think about it too. Jesus isn't riding on the donkey because he's tired. I mean, he's probably in pretty good shape. You know, they walked everywhere they went. You never see Jesus running anywhere. You never see Jesus riding anything until this point. And so he's probably not riding the donkey because he's exhausted. He's riding the donkey because he's making a point. He's riding the donkey because he's fulfilling this prophecy. Here in John chapter 12, verse 15, this is a, 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 an Old Testament prophecy of Jesus coming in uh, uh, to town riding on this donkey in this way. And everyone's looking, everyone's watching, everyone's celebrating and crying out, being a part uh, of the celebration, calling him the king coming to bring peace. But I want you to think about it too. This crowd that's crying out to Jesus. Jesus knew who he was and why he was there. But this crowd crying out to Jesus in just a few days' time would be crying the opposite. Here on Sunday, they're crying, save us now. You are the king. You are the son of God. Save us now. Just a few days later, they're going to be crying out, crucify him, execute him. Their tone will have changed in just a matter of days. Their temperament changes with the change of direction of the wind. Uh, one of the guys that, one of the commentators I read, a guy named Wearsby, he said, it's easier to shout in a parade than stand at a cross. It's easier to shout when everybody's happy and in agreement than stand by yourself when things get difficult and hard. Easier to shout in a parade than stand at a cross. They're celebrating here by the thousands, hundreds of thousands, and in a few days they're going to be calling for Jesus' death as they're here. But Jesus was not swayed by the crowd. He knew that these same people would be changing their tune in just a few days. He knew these people would be changing what they were going to say and their attitudes in just a few days. So, but Jesus did not allow the crowd to dictate how he felt about himself or how he felt about why he was there. He was very confident in who he was, very confident in why he was there. He didn't need confirmation or consensus from the crowd to tell him what he already knew. And he says this earlier in the book of John, in John chapter 2, verse 24. And when the people came to try to make him king, Jesus knowing it wasn't time for him to be king, John writes, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, but he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. He knew these people would change their tune. He knew it. And so why he, what he was going to do wasn't going to change because the people were happy one day and would be unhappy another day. I don't know if you know this. People are fickle. You ever had that experience? Somebody have one opinion one day and the opposite opinion the next day and forget that they had the previous opinion the day before? Nobody look at your spouse you're in dangerous ground, man. 
Sometimes I wish y'all could see what I see. I was like, <laughs> it is really funny sometimes, the interactions that go on in the pews. You think I don't see it, but I see it. Those pews aren't as high as you think as you're doing some of this business. <laughs> uh, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Their opinions were going to waffle back and forth. But this kind of thought process, how often do we struggle with this? Wanting to make people happy. Struggle with what somebody else thinks. Struggle with them expressing their opinion and us not wanting them to be mad at us. And that dictating what we are going to do next and how we are going to do it. You know, allowing the thoughts and opinions of those with a less than eternal perspective guide what we do and what we think about ourselves is really the wrong way to walk about life. But it's still something that we all deal with. Even when you absolutely know beyond the shadow of a doubt what you've got to do, and then somebody stands up in opposition, maybe somebody that you've trusted, maybe somebody that you feel like they know what they're talking about, but you also know what God told you. You know what you should be. Maybe you know what Scripture says. And it's this conflict of not wanting to upset this person and wanting to do what, what you feel like God's telling you to do. This, this consistent confliction within your heart about what you need to do. Because I don't know anybody, I mean there's some people that seem that way, but I don't know anybody that has a desire to intentionally make everybody mad at them. Maybe deep down, there's a little bit of psychopath, but some of us like making people mad at us. But at the end of the day, nobody wants everybody to be mad at them. Nobody does. It's not fun. You don't like that constant hostility aimed at you. You don't like any of that. Now, I'm not saying we should never listen to what other people say. What I am saying, though, is that we should filter what other people say through what the Lord says about us. We should filter what other people say through the Lord's opinion rather than filtering the Lord's opinion through other people's opinions. You see, the Lord should always be our filter through which we allow outside influences inside. The Lord should always be our filter. And that's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. You know, there's been times, even here at the church, that I've allowed other people's opinions to, to change what we do, to change what I do, to change my decisions. And it turned out, as you can predict, very poorly. I remember there was one time that we had just been through a contentious season, and uh, I wasn't itching for any more fights, and I knew some of the, the people who were upset uh, really wanted us to change our church times. This was a number of years ago. Um, wanted us to change our church times, when we had church and when we had small groups. And so I said, yes, let's just do it. Uh, it'll make them happy, they'll stop fighting, they'll stop complaining, and everything will be great. People who fight and complain are going to fight and complain, no matter what you do. But at the time, I didn't know that. And I thought, man, they really want this. I'm just, we're just going to do it. And so I did the, the, the thing you should never do, especially as the preacher, and not confess it to the church. I didn't ask God. 
And so I said, yeah, sure, let's, let's change the church times. And so we changed the church times from what they were to this new thing, and it was horrible. I mean, it, it, was, it messed me up. It messed all the church up. It messed the children up. It, it, it messed the small groups up. Uh, it, was, it was just a bad deal. And we, we went through months like this, and I finally said, oh, we got to change it back. This is just isn't working. This is really bad. And so we, we switched back, and the Lord blessed in an incredible way, um, which, you know, the church times uh, that we have now, and if God leads us to change them again, we'll change them again. But we're not going to change until God says change them. I learned that one the hard way. It's like climbing a ladder without the proper support. You learn the hard way. Sometimes you've got to break a wrist and a tailbone to get it right. <laughs> Some of us just need that extra nudge to get it right. Uh, and so there's been moments like that. But even if you know the truth of what God has for you, what other people say and do still hurts and still stings. Even if you know beyond the shadow of a doubt the direction you're going is exactly what God would have you to do, that doesn't mean the arrows aren't going to sting any less as you walk that path. It's still going to be hard. It's still going to be difficult. You know, there was a time, another time here at the church, when, when it was difficult. And lots of things were being said and done and, and um, people going out of their way to, to, to do difficult things. Um, and I knew what was right. I knew what was right. I knew what the scripture said. I went home every day and was encouraged and supported by my wife, reminding me what scripture said and the direction God had for us. Um, but still, the things that were said, like specifically to me, about me, about my family, to my face, it's not easy to walk that road. Um, and sometimes it takes just one step at a time. How are you going to make it through? I don't know. I just know i got to take one more step. And God will give me the strength once I take that step to take the next step. Because right now, I don't have enough strength to take two steps. I just take one. And then God will give me the strength for the next step once I get to that step. You can know what's right. And you can even know that people are going to say whatever people are going to say. And people are going to do whatever people are going to do. But that doesn't make it easier. It's still going to be hard and difficult. It's still going to be a rough, rough road to hoe as you go in the direction God would have you go. Jesus said that in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. You're going to have it. Guaranteed, trouble's coming. You say, I don't got any trouble right now. Well, maybe you don't see it, or maybe it's about to come. Trouble's coming one way or another. Either you're coming out of a storm, you're in a storm, or you're about to be in a storm. Storms are inevitable in this world. And a lot of times the storms are caused by people most of the time, by people. You may not know how long the storm's going to last, but all you can know in the moment is I need the Lord to sustain me through the storm. And I can promise you from personal experience, the only way through the storm is by leaning on Jesus. It may take you years to, to heal. It may take, and even then, the scars are going to hurt. But the only way through is leaning on Jesus. Only way through is leaning 
on Jesus and allow him to sustain you one step at a time. And so what we can do, I mean, Jesus walking into town, knowing the people are praising him on Sunday, knowing the people are going to come at him on, on uh, uh, Friday morning, they're going to come for him Thursday night in the middle of the night, and they're going to crucify him Friday morning. He still knew, I'm here because God had me to come here and die. So these people, even the people who are shouting and screaming, can come to salvation. And Jesus went to the cross, fully willingly went to the cross to die in the face of that opposition, no matter what people were saying. And so here's the thing. We can't stop and set up camp in the valley of what someone said. Don't ever stop and set up camp in the valley of what someone said. Keep moving towards the mountaintop of God's promises. Because if you set up camp, it's easy to set up camp and wallow in what someone said. And it keeps coming up in the back of your mind at the most inopportune moments. What that person said about who they think you are or what that person said about what they think you should do or what that person said about a family member, what that person said, it will just sting and it will sit there and reside. And you can set up camp in the valley of what they said all day long. And some of you have done it for decades and it messes you up. Messes you up. It's like setting up your tent downhill from the bathroom. Bad idea. Because you're in the mess. Don't set your tent in the valley of what someone said. Keep moving toward the mountaintop of God's promises. And he'll carry you through it. Jesus was not swayed by the cries of joy that so quickly turned into cries for execution, cries of crucifixion. God's word to him, about him, were all that mattered. That's why Jesus, even throughout his ministry, continued to go out and spend time with God. Even though Jesus is God, he continued to go out and spend alone time with God, demonstrating for us how we ought to live. The attacks are coming with great intensity. You have set up your tent in the valley of what someone said. That means you need to spend more time with God. You need to take those thoughts that are continually there and replace them with something better. Replace them with something better. You can't keep eating bad food hoping you'll feel better. You got to replace it. You can't keep munching on those thoughts hoping you'll feel better because you won't. You may come up with a different thing you should say next time you see that person, even though you won't say it, because you probably shouldn't. Again, speaking from personal experience, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. When you spend weeks coming up with the right retort and the opportunity comes and you give it, it makes it so much worse. Rely on Jesus and allow him to carry you through. You see, for Jesus in coming and taking all these attacks, taking everything he was going to take, it was all for the sake of those people, even the attackers, to come to know Christ, to come to salvation. Because even those people needed Jesus. Church, it's not in scripture, but church history tells us that as Paul was being led out to be beheaded, he was sharing the gospel with the guy going to cut his head off. Because for Paul, that person's salvation mattered more. That person's salvation matters more. 
People may say all kinds of things to you and about you, but those things in eternity don't matter. Don't entrust the attention of your God-given mind to such opinions of of a less than eternal perspective. Always remember who you are and why you are here. Always remember who you are and why you are here. On that back table, I have a list for you to take with you. I have a full sheet for some, for if you'd like a full sheet, and I've got a half sheet if you want a half sheet. Half sheet's what I grabbed. It's got scriptures on the back and the front. And at the top, it says who you are and why you were here. And it lists out a bunch of scriptures about what God says about you. Like Ephesians 2.10, God made you specifically for a good purpose. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God made you, specifically you, as you are, with your personality traits with your strengths, with your weaknesses. God made you as you are for a purpose. For good works, he says. People can say all kinds of stuff about what they want to say about you, but you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt because of that verse, that promise, God made you. God made you. God made you for a good purpose. Or Isaiah 41.10, God is with you. God will hold you up. God will strengthen you. God will help you. Fear not, it says, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And if you look at that verse, all those statements, I will do this, those are guarantees. Guarantees. I will strengthen you. It's not I I may strengthen you if you act right and live right and don't say anything bad and think good and wake up at the right time. If you eat right, no more bluebell. He says, I will strengthen you. So have all the bluebell you want. Praise Jesus. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's a good one. We're going to skip down a couple, Alyssa. Uh, Isaiah 62.3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. What does God call you? Beautiful. Anybody ever said something less than that to you? Just straight up lying. What did God say? You're beautiful. Puts it to rest. Not only that, John 15, 15, you are Jesus' friend. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You are a friend of God, a friend of God. I've got child of God on here. You're a new creation. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are joy-filled. You are peace-filled. You are not trouble-filled. You are not fear-filled. You are victorious. You are whole. You are adopted, not abandoned. You are forgiven. Look at that one. That's down at the end, Alyssa. 1 John 2, 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Anybody ever bring up something bad you've done in the past? What does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven 
And what does he do with what's forgiven? He casts it as far as the east is from the west. As far as it goes. It just keeps going. It cannot ever touch. It cannot ever come back. They are forgiven. They're done away with. To bring it back would be to pull it out from under the blood of Jesus, which cannot be done. It's done. It's over. It's past. It is forgiven for all time. Psalm 1832, you're strong. Isaiah 53, 5, you are healed. Uh, uh, grab one of these when you walk out back there. If we need more, we'll print more. We got the half sheets, we got the full sheets. What God says about you, what God thinks about you. People say what they want all day long, and they do, and they never stop. It almost seems like that's why we have the internet, for people to express their unpetitioned opinions to us constantly without fail. But what does God say? You are mine. Let me give you a demonstration of what God does to those he cares about. This isn't on the screen either. We did this Wednesday night during our study in Deuteronomy 34. Moses had been leading the people of Israel, led them through the wilderness, but then Moses and his brother Aaron sinned greatly and demonstrated before the whole people a great distrust of God. And so Moses wasn't going to be allowed to go in to the promised land that he'd been leading the people for these 40 years to do. And so God took Moses up on a mountain. Moses, having been sentenced, he was going to be punished. He was not going to get into the promised land. God takes him up on this mountain and shows him everything in the promised land. Let's see, this is in Deuteronomy 34. Starting in verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Who buried Moses? God buried Moses. Moses who sinned. Moses who demonstrated before the people a great sin. Moses who killed a man. God, with his own hands, dug a grave and buried Moses, covered the grave. No one knows where the grave is except God, because God was the one who did it. God, with great care and compassion, God, with great love, buried his friend Moses because he cared that much. That's how much God cares about you. He's with you every day. He walks with you every day. He sees what all these people are doing. He sees that stuff that lives writ-free in the back of your mind about what other people have said, about what other people have done, that, is, that have impacted you in such a profound way. And he says, I love you more than that. Stop looking at that. Stop thinking about that. Look to me and what I say about you. I say you're beautiful. I say you're my friend. I say you're a child of God. I say you're an heir of heaven. I say you're adopted, not abandoned. I say you're strong. Don't listen to that. Listen to me, he says. So who will you listen to today? Who are you listening to today? What voices are influencing you about what you think about yourself, about what you think about other people, about what you think about your life and what you're going through? You know what Jesus said, or what the Lord said, uh, Jesus in John 15, you are joy-filled. Would you say you're joy-filled 100% of the time? And maybe your influence in those moments is not the Lord. 
And we need to start purging that mess out from under our tent and move up to higher ground. Find the joy, find the peace, find the victory. Find the healing and the strength. Find wholeness with God. Will you look to the Lord today? You are loved by Jesus right where you are right now. You know, that's what Jesus said in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. The world. It doesn't say just believers there. It says the world. That's everybody. I don't know if you know the phrase. The world. That means the whole world. All of it. Even the bad parts. Even the parts that we don't like. Even the parts that we have come out of in our past. Even the people we may not be all that fond of. That's not y'all, that's other people. Not fond of people, that's other people. God loves the whole world as they are, where they are. So much so that he came as Jesus and died for us. He, said, he didn't say, you gotta do a bunch of stuff right before I come. He didn't say, you gotta get everything perfect before I come. He said, I'm coming, whether you're ready or not. Like game of eternal hide and seek. Ready or not, here I come. And he came for us. Which we were watching the deal this morning. You know why Jesus came when he came? God was waiting for the perfect time. Scripture calls it the fullness of time. A couple of things had to be ready in the world for the message of Jesus to get around the world. Before, uh, you know, a few decades before Jesus came, the world was full of war, terrible roads, and a whole bunch of different languages. So what happened? Alexander the Great came, conquered the known world, and taught everybody one language, Greek. Alexander the Great died, they split up his kingdom, and then another, another kingdom came and dominated the world, the Romans. Romans did two things great. First, they stopped the wars and made a bunch of peace, peace of Rome. Second, they built a whole bunch of roads so it's easier to get around. So now you got a bunch of peace, you got one language everybody speaks, and you got a bunch of roads that make it real easy to get around. And in that moment, it was the fullness of time. Jesus came perfect moment for the message to get around the world in a way it never could have been before. And Jesus showed up at the right time, in the right moment, and he lived, and he died, and he rose from the dead. So now the message is out there, and we can find the peace, and we can find the healing, and we can find the wholeness, and we can find the victory if we just turn to Jesus. If we just listen to Jesus and follow Jesus and believe in Jesus. So that's the question today. Will you believe in Jesus? Today, Palm Sunday, seven days from Easter, will you believe in Jesus today? If you don't believe in Jesus or haven't yet, you've known about him, maybe in your head. Maybe your parents talked about him a lot growing up. Maybe you've had a bad experience with church in the past. It's a big deal that you walked in here, these doors today, and you walked down the green carpet sitting on the green pews today. And you've got a lot of wounds because of things that have happened in church in the past. And it's time to step up and say, okay, Jesus, 
I will believe today. I will follow you today. I will walk with you today. I will listen to you today. And those voices that have been festering under my tent, I'll clean it out in this moment. And you'll listen to Jesus today. Will you believe in him? Will you follow him today? In just a minute, the music team's gonna come. I'll be standing here at the front. Jared will be here. You can catch one of us. Um, whether going or coming, I'll be here. Jared will be in the back. And we'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Um, if you wanna believe in Jesus for the first time, absolutely. You wanna rededicate your life to Christ like we had Alan last week? Absolutely. You wanna join the church, put your life here, your gifts here, you can do that. You wanna be baptized and, and declare to the world that you belong to Jesus now? You can do that too. Maybe you just need to come and pray. Pray for, pray for the voices you've been listening to. Pray for the mess that has been influencing you and pray for Jesus' strength. Maybe you need to go back there to that table and get this list uh, of scriptures and start praying through these scriptures. Maybe there's somebody in your life, a family member or a friend, who's been desperately struggling with one of these areas and you need to come and pray over them. Maybe they're here and you need to grab them and say, I'm praying over you right now. What are you going to do in this moment? We call it the invitation because it, what it is is I'm inviting you to make a decision. I'm inviting you to believe in Jesus. I'm inviting you to come and pray. I'm inviting you to follow whatever the Lord is placing on your heart right now. So what is he telling you to do? You'll pray with me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, thank you for Jesus. And with those last few days before he died, he was still influencing people in such a phenomenal way, pointing them to eternity in such a phenomenal way, hearing the voice of the crowd, knowing in just a few days the tone of those voices would change, and he still stayed the course. God, I pray that in our lives we would stay the course, whatever course you set us on, with great faithfulness, unwavering faithfulness, even as the ground beneath us feels as though it might shake. Even if we fall to our knees and all we can do is crawl, we would continue moving forward up the mountain to the promises you've delivered to us in your word. One foot in front of the other. God, if anyone in the room today, anyone watching online needs to believe in you for the first time, God, I pray this would be that moment. There would be no more him hawing there would be no more arguing with you, but they would believe right now in what you have for their eternity. God, I thank you. Thank you for your 
love that you love us where we are right where we are and you come to us meet us where we are just as we are to show us the way forward help us all see that right now in your name I pray amen